Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your live local news from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Senator Tammy Baldwin is seeking re-election, her campaign announced today. She'll be seeking her third term in the United States Senate. In a statement, Baldwin underscored her priorities, protecting the right to an abortion and fighting for the working class. The announcement kicks off uh, a protracted election season. The election in November 2024 is about a year and a half away. No Republican has declared their candidacy, though there's speculation current U.S. Representative Mike Gallagher could run, reports the Associated Press. Baldwin, once a member of the Dane County Board, is the first woman that Wisconsin's elected to Congress when she won a seat in the United States House in 1998. She also holds the distinction of being the first openly gay senator in U.S. history. She'd go on to win a seat in the Senate in 2012, defeating former Governor Tommy Thompson, and again in 2018, that time defeating state senator Leah Vukmir. Last year, Baldwin spearheaded legislation to protect same-sex and interracial marriages after the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision left those rights vulnerable. Locally, Baldwin has generated criticism from some of her support uh, for the F-35 fighter jets being stationed at Truax Field in Madison. Well, we hit 82 degrees today in Madison, and that hot weather continues to render the state particularly at risk for fires. The National Weather Service issued a so-called red flag warning for the state, as well as for an enormous swath of the adjacent upper Midwest and Plains through 8 a.m. this evening. Such warnings are issued when warm temperatures, very low humidities, and strong winds are expected to combine to produce an increased risk of fire. Governor Evers declared a state of emergency today in response to the warnings. The executive order gives the Department of Natural Resources the ability to have all available resources at the ready to be quickly dispatched if needed. And in other environmental news, a decision over whether to approve a controversial new wolf management plan has been put off until fall, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The board of the Department of Natural Resources is expected to put off their vote until this October. The state's wolf management plan hasn't been updated in more than two decades. Under the new proposal, local populations would be monitored, uh, rather than the state maintaining a population goal statewide. The plan has drawn more than 3,500 comments from the public, and those comments were released in redacted form last Friday. How to manage Wisconsin's wolf population has long simmered as a public debate, pitting wolf advocates and conservationists against hunters. Those tensions flared again in spring 2021 when the DNR permitted a hunt after a flurry of legal action from interest groups. Hunters killed 218 wolves in less than a three-day period, an estimated quarter of the state's 972 wolf population then. Fox News will host the first Republican presidential debate in Milwaukee this summer. Yes, this summer, 2023, that's a year before the Republican National Convention, which will also be held in Milwaukee in 2024. That follows as Democrats announced their national convention would be held next year just a few miles to the south in Chicago. Democrats ostensibly hosted their 2020 convention in Milwaukee, but the pandemic meant that those best-laid plans resulted in empty hotels, closed bars, and no crowds, with most of the production being a virtual affair. 
Tyco Incorporated, a manufacturer of firefighting foam loaded with PFAS, has been issued a third notice of noncompliance by the DNR in its investigation of contamination of private wells in the Marinette area. Tyco has been under investigation since 2017 for its use of PFAS in the manufacturing sites in Marinette and Peshtigo. Tyco released large concentrations of PFAS into its sewer lines, and the sludge from the sewer treatment plant was then spread on farm fields as fertilizer. There was no statement from the DNR on what penalties will be sought by the Department of Justice due to its lack of cooperation with the investigation. One year ago, Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call filed a lawsuit against Tyco and its parent company, Johnson Controls, for violating the state's hazardous spills law, uh, charging that the company hasn't done enough to clean up PFAS contamination. A trial has been tentatively set for December of 2024. And those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. At a public hearing before the state's Assembly Committee on Agriculture yesterday, a bipartisan group of lawmakers joined conservationists to call for the state's farmland preservation program to get a new update. That program, created in 1970, encourages farmers to utilize conservation practices to ensure available farmland for future generations. To learn more about the program and why folks are looking for an update, our producer Nate Wegehaupt spoke with Katie Abbott, an Iowa County conservationist who spoke in support of the update at yesterday's public hearing. Now, Katie, what is the Farmland Preservation Program as it currently stands? What is that program and what does it do? So currently the Farmland Preservation Program provides a income tax credit on the state, on everyone's state income taxes um, for following the state's soil and water agriculture performance standards. So there's a statute that lists um, various standards that all farms should follow in order to protect our soil and water. There's, there's several things, including having a nutrient management plan, making sure soil loss is at a minimum, not tilling too close to streams, um, making sure manure isn't running off directly to streams, and there's, there's several others. So the Farmland Preservation Program is an incentive program to provide this tax credit to farms that are following all of those standards. And the county staff are the ones who visit the farms and make sure that they are in compliance with all of those standards. And then we would issue a certificate of compliance that then they can use on their taxes to get their credit. There's a couple of different levels of the credit. In some areas, if there's an ag, what we call an ag enterprise area, and they sign a long-term agreement for certain practices, they can get a $5 per acre credit. We don't actually have any of those in Iowa County. Our county is completely covered by farmland preservation zoning. So anyone who is in an ag zoning area that is certified by the Department of Agriculture, they can take a $7.50 per acre credit. So that's what everyone in Iowa County gets. And then if you have zoning and an agreement in an ag enterprise area, then you can get the $10. So this new bill is proposing that um, basically increasing those rates so that people are getting, in Iowa County, they would be getting $10 an acre tax credit instead of $7.50. So it's a little bit of a bump, 
but basically it's, you know, an incentive payment for, to help farmers do the right thing for soil and water in the state. You are in, over in Iowa County there. So about mm-hmm. how many, about how many farms uh, take advantage of this program? How many are enrolled? We have 675 active certificates of compliance. So some of those are a full farm operation. Some of those are people who rent out their land to farmers. So that's a, it's a mix, but we have 675 um, properties under the program right now. And then you sort of went over what the, the proposed changes for this program are. Uh, why, was these, why are these changes being put forward? These changes are really needed to modernize the program and keep up with the costs of farmers staying in compliance. So in 2009, these rates were put in place. And in 2014, they actually added four new standards to the statewide ag performance standards. But the rate didn't increase accordingly with, with new standards. Costs have increased a lot. We all know that. Um, so the cost of staying in compliance for these farmers has gone up quite a bit. And sometimes they do the math and they're, they feel like they're spending more on nutrient management plan every year than they're getting in the credit. And so when they start looking at those comparisons, we do see people dropping out because they don't feel like the credit is enough money to make it worth their time um, and, and their cost to, to stay in compliance with everything. The bill also has a couple other things. Um, it reduces the length of the farmland preservation agreements um, from 15 years to 10 and so that just, I think, gives a little more flexibility to farmers as they're thinking about long-term plans for their farms. And it also provides a, an adjustment for inflation every year with these rates. So that, to me, is very important so that we don't have to come back in another 10 years and, and adjust these rates again, that we can stay up to date with what's happening with inflation so that hopefully we can continue to um, make this program financially viable for farmers to participate in. And now yesterday you spoke in a public hearing on these proposed changes in favor of the changes. Why, why did you speak in favor of them? I spoke in favor because I really feel like this program is the best tool we have for voluntary soil and water conservation in the state. And we do ask a lot of our farmers in this country. You know, we, we want maximum food. We want food to be as affordable as we can make it. We want fuel for ethanol, and then we we also, you know, are asking farmers to make sure the the water stays clean, that it soaks in, that our soil is healthy. Um, there's more issues now with reducing flooding risk because we're getting much bigger rain events, and more recently now there's interest in farmers doing more to help sequester carbon in the soil. So there's a lot of societal benefits that farmers are providing us, and um, I think they do deserve to be compensated for some of that. So this incentive program is a way to help them go a little bit above and beyond what maybe just a normal farm operation might do to try to, you know, again, protect our soil and water and provide some of these benefits to the whole community. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more on some of those benefits. What what about this program uh, benefits conservation efforts in, in Iowa County? It does quite a bit in our county. So This is a great tool for the conservation staff to build relationships with farmers and and talk about soil and water quality. Um, It has certain requirements that are kind of a baseline of conservation. So, for example, 
um, every soil type has a certain amount of soil loss that it can tolerate, and they have to make sure that they are staying under that amount. So we verify that they're not losing too much soil. We make sure that they're, for example, not tilling too close to a stream where the soil might be falling into the stream. Um, we make sure that any manure storages aren't overflowing, um, that manure from a barnyard isn't running off into a stream. So there's a lot of standards in this program um, that they have to follow that are really are protecting our public waters and our soil health in general. Um, and when you have good soil health, that helps rain soak in better, which can reduce some of the, the impacts of a heavy rainfall. So there are a lot of benefits, you know, just in general to our public water resources by farmers participating in this program. And now you spoke on this a little bit before as well, but what about the farmers? What sort of uh, benefits do the farmers get for, for joining this program? They get the annual um, income tax credit, which, again, $7.50 per acre, and that does help offset the expenses of doing the soil testing and the nutrient management planning that they're supposed to be updated every year. The plans are updated every year. The soil tests are every four years. Um, it can help offset some of the expenses of um, maybe changing their tillage practices or adding a cover crop if they need to to reduce erosion. So there's a lot of new practices that might be required for them to stay in compliance with this program that this tax credit can help off offset the cost of those. And then it's also, again, it's um, kind of a, a way for them to check in on their conservation practices. You know, farmers want to do the right thing and a really great tool for them to know and to verify that they're doing the right thing um, is to have that nutrient management plan every year because that, that does um, show them what their soil loss is. It shows them how much fertilizer their soils need so they can make sure they're not over-applying, so that can save them quite a bit of money. It shows them where, which soils, which fields might need more nutrients so they can maybe focus manure applications on, on that part to make sure that those crops are getting the nutrients they need. So it can really help with planning their whole, their whole nutrient system, making sure they're saving money, and just helping them verify that the practices they're doing are having the effects they want on the, on the land. So I think it just provides a lot of good tools to the farmers. It can help them save money, and then it also can help them make a little, you know, get that tax credit to, to support their, their conservation projects. And Katie, do you have just any final thoughts that you would like to share about this about this program? Um, you know, I, again, I just think it's a really valuable tool. I do think that, you know, it's a good way, again, to help farmers offset the costs of all of this conservation that we're asking them to do. And it's a great tool for conservation staff to build and maintain relationships with all of these farmers and landowners. And so I think we really do need to support this program so that we can continue to have all of these benefits. And as costs continue to rise, if this program doesn't keep up, I feel like we're going to continue seeing people dropping out, which we have consistently over the last five years have seen people dropping out of the program. So I do think it's time for, for an update and, you know, try to keep up with, you know, the needs of the farm community to, to help them with their conservation efforts. I've been talking with Katie Abbott, Iowa County Conservationist, about the proposed changes to the state's farmland preservation program. Katie, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
Today, in the second floor of the Madison Municipal Building, poll workers hand-counted ballots to discover who will take over as Alder in Madison's District 14. On election night, an unofficial tally showed the race nearly tied, with Noah Lieberman ahead of Isidore Knox Jr. by just two votes. At a canvas last Friday, that gap narrowed down to one vote. And after a recount expected to take several hours stretched into a more than eight-hour affair today, the results are in, and they come with a twist. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt was on the scene and has this breaking news. Both candidates and their legal teams were present for today's recount, which kicked off at 9 a.m. and ran all throughout the day. In total, the recount lasted eight and a half hours. About a dozen poll workers counted and double-checked ballots in the wards making up District 14. Votes are in shortly before broadcast. The recount produced an even tie. Knox was able to pick up one vote from a ballot that had been marked both Isidore Knox Jr. and a write-in, though no other name was written for the write-in. The ballot was rejected by the ballot machine at the polling place, but after deliberation with City Attorney Mike Haas and the State Elections Commission, the vote was given to Knox Jr., as it showed clear intention that the vote was meant for him. By state law, when an election comes out to an exact tie, that election is decided by a game of chance. In this case, they wrote the candidates' names on two slips of paper and drew one at random out of the bag. And the name that was drawn? Isidore Knox Jr. The election between Noah Lieberman and Isidore Knox Jr. has been extraordinarily close. On election night, Lieberman led Knox by just two votes. That margin narrowed at an election canvas last Friday, where a provisional ballot eked out another vote for Knox. So as of this morning, the race had Lieberman ahead by one vote, 1,384 votes to 1,383. Under state law, an election this close qualifies for a free recount. Knox Jr. says that because it would come at no cost to him, he saw no reason not to ask for one. And I think it's important for every vote to count. Uh, even out of the canvas they did on Friday, uh, I picked up a vote, uh, a provisional vote. So we just want to make sure that everybody who came to vote, that their vote is counted correctly. Ann Habel sits on the County Board of Canvassers, the board that certifies elections. She broke down the process of today's recount. They're reconciling the poll books. At each ward, there's two poll books. So when you go to vote, you tell them your name, you give them the voter number, and it's in two poll books, which is a wonderful way to keep things straight. So if there's an error, you can usually find the error. So the first thing that all the uh, tables did was reconcile the poll books. A lot of them are finished with that. The second thing they did is they looked at all the absentee ballots in that area and they looked for ones that were defective or rejected or problematic and all the election officials keep a report. It's called an inspector statement of absentee ballots and so far some of them have finished that and we haven't found any problems with that. We're just about to start on opening up the secure bags from Election Day and looking at ballots. And we're separating the ballots into ones that were absentee ballots. Now, we can't identify names with ballots, but we can identify whether they were absentee or not at the, at the polling place. They're separating those out. 
Then they're separating them out by ward, and then they're counting. And they're trying to make sure that the, the hand count is the same as what the machine count was at the polling place. It's not the first time a local election has gone to recount, but it may be the first with such a close margin. The last recount for a local race in Madison was in 2007, when Thay Pham Ramel defeated Gary Paulson by just 13 votes. After the recount, however, Pham Ramel was still the winner of District 20. Habel says that she's participated in many recounts over the years and has never seen one like this. Every single recount that we've had has changed the numbers, but every single recount has not changed an outcome. So the numbers have changed, but never as much as the gap between the candidates. When the recount kicked off this morning, it was estimated that it would take two or three hours, but the candidates stayed on site as the counting stretched throughout the afternoon. And they were there with their legal teams. Aaron Dealey is representing Isidore Knox Jr. and retired lawyer John Hendrick is representing Noah Lieberman. Lieberman's team brought along a handful of election observers who Hendrick says were there to closely watch the count in each ward. I feel like we're, we're well prepared. Our observers are going to do their best to make sure that the will of the voters is carried out. Going into today, both candidates thought the recount would only take a few hours, but as the hours went on, both candidates could only wait for the poll workers to do their job. Lieberman says that even with the long wait, the recount is part of democracy. I was anxious coming into today, and I'm still anxious, uh, but you know, this is what democracy looks like, and I, until every vote is counted, you know, that's just going to kind of be how it is. Lieberman can appeal the recount until next Wednesday. That means that unless Lieberman submits a letter to the city clerk's office before then stating that he does not intend on appealing the decision, Knox cannot be sworn in until the end of the day Wednesday. If Lieberman does submit a letter saying he won't appeal, Knox Jr. will be sworn in along with seven other new alders next Tuesday afternoon. The new city council will hold their first meeting later that night. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. now, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Our ongoing series, Water Water Series, is looking at Madison's water issues, from environmental to public health to recreational. In this episode of Water Stories, feature producer, uh, how does does PFAS get into fish? Uh, What concentrations of PFAS have been found in fish? Uh, What do the latest fish advisories recommend? In today's episode, feature producer Greg Michaud tackles fish consumption advisories. Uh, Michaud spoke with Nathan Klosko, Site Evaluation Program Manager in the Bureau of Environmental Health, Department of Health Services, about these questions. This morning we're talking with Nathan Klotzko, who is with the Wisconsin Department of Health Services and the Bureau of Environmental Health. Good morning, Nathan. Good morning, Greg. And Nathan, as you know, uh, and, and many of our listeners know this as well, but not all of them, uh, PFAS chemicals are dubbed the forever chemicals because they are difficult to break down in the environment. Can you explain to us briefly 
from a public health perspective, why should we be concerned about these chemicals? Yeah, it's. I think it's best to start with sort of a big picture. What are PFAS? Um, they're this large class of man-made chemicals that have been used extensively um, through consumer and industrial products since the 50s um, in nonstick cookware, stain-repellent clothing, and into aqueous film-forming foam, firefighting foams, things like that. Um, and due to their chemical structure, which is that long carbon chain with lots of fluorines attached, they're very persistent in the environment. That's where they get their name, Forever Chemicals. Um, it takes a long time for them to break down in the environment and a very long time to break down or, and be excreted out of our bodies. Um, so they, some of them can stay in our bodies for years. Different PFAS have a number of different types of health impacts. Um, but research has shown that high levels of the most common PFAS we see, the long chain PFAS, including PFOA, PFOS, PFHXS, and PFNA, um, can have a number of health impacts, including increasing cholesterol levels, um, decreasing how well the body responds to vaccines, um, some sort of Im uh, that immune um, modulation. Um, they've been seen to impact fertility and birth weights, um, and also they have been seen to uh, potentially cause cancers. And in regards to fish, how do these chemicals actually get into the fish? Sure. So most most commonly, once these chemicals are released into the environment, either through historical use uh, at a firefighting training facility or at an airport um, or through spills or through leaching from a landfill, there are lots of different ways it might get into the environment. Um, the PFAS will move through the soil and enter groundwater where it can move through the environment. That groundwater then recharges surface water bodies, such as streams, lakes, and rivers. And once there, the PFAS is taken up by the small plants um, and, and creatures that live in the river, the algae, the, the phytoplankton, the macroinvertebrates, which the fish then eat. Um, so it gradually accumulates through the food chain and gets into the fish. And like in humans, once the PFAS are ingested by the fish, they're absorbed into blood and make their way into the tissue, um, the muscle tissue, where they can reside for years and build up. Let's focus on Dane County surface waters right now. What concentrations have you found in fish in the Dane County lakes and streams? Sure. Since catching, sampling, and testing PFAS is a very time-intensive process, it can take upwards of a year from catching the fish until we get results to only test fish from water bodies that we know or suspect have elevated levels of contamination. So we haven't done a full sweep of all Dane County waters in ones that we think that there might be problems. Um, so within Dane County, we've tested fish for PFAS from Black Earth Creek and the Yahara Lake chain from Lake Monona downstream. And that includes Starkweather Creek, then Lakes Monona, Wabiza, Kaganza, and the upper and lower mud lakes, um, all the way down till it hits the Rock River in Rock County. The average levels of PFOS specifically that we found in fish has varied a bit by species, but is generally between um, non-detect and 20 nanograms per gram. Um, and some species are much higher up to 100 nanograms per gram. 
And just for context, we generally begin issuing consumption advisories at 10 nanograms per gram. And we don't get two recommendations of do not eat any fish until um, over 200, which we haven't seen um, levels close to. Can you explain for our listeners how the levels that you have found in Dane County waters differ from the levels in fish caught in Lake Michigan? Yeah. So there aren't uniform levels of PFAS in Lake Michigan just due to its size. It has so many small um, like micro ecosystems, so to yeah. speak. Um, and we are still learning about the levels as we continue to sample. However, based on other data that we have from uh, EPA and Michigan, the concentrations we've seen in some fish are roughly comparable to the levels we've seen in Dane County waters where we have the advisories set. It is worth mentioning that there are a number of existing advisories in Lake Michigan based on another uh, persistent uh, organic pollutant polychlorinated biphenyls or PCBs. And, and to that point, the results we've seen in for PFAS in Lake Michigan haven't indicated that we need more restrictive advisories based on PFOS levels um, compared to those uh, PCB levels. But we're continuing to test for uh, Lake Michigan and Green Bay fish. We'll switch back to Dane County right now. For the Dane County fish advisories, what are some of the recommendations? How do those recommendations look for Dane County? First off, just to point folks in the right direction, um, I want to mention that the DNR, the Department of Natural Resources, regularly updates a publication called Choose Wisely, um, a health guide for eating fish in Wisconsin. Um, that's a publication that can be found on the DNR website, and we also sent, they send out paper copies of that to local health departments to try and get into the hands of individuals who might be doing fishing. Um, that has both general consumption guidelines as well as specific advisories. Broadly, when we issue advisories, we issue them as a, one in a handful of categories, whether consumption is unrestricted or whether we recommend limiting consumptions of a particular species to one meal a week, one meal a month, one every other month, or if we recommend not eating at all. So for most Dane County waters, the general statewide advisory will apply, um, which is that for women under 50 um, and children under 15, we recommend limiting to one meal per week for panfish um, and one meal per month for all other species. For women over 50 um, and for men, Panfish consumption is unrestricted, um, and we recommend limiting to one meal per week for other species, more of those predator species. That general advisory is based on the fact that most fish, regardless of what source, will have some baseline levels of mercury present, um, just because it is so persistent throughout the environment. Um, and because mercury has developmental uh, impacts, that is why there are the specific, slightly more restrictive advisories for women of childbearing years, um, and younger children. There are a few specific advisories for Dane County waters I can go into. And I, were, I know we're focusing on uh, PFAS, but there are some set also for PCB contamination. Recommend limiting carp consumption to no more than one meal per month for carp caught in Badfish Creek, Lake Wingra, and the Yahara chain. 
from Lake Monona downstream. For PFAS, there are two site-specific advisories, one for trout in Black Earth Creek, um, that's one meal per week, and a much larger one for the Hara chain from Lake Monona downstream um, through that whole chain of lakes that I mentioned earlier. For that chain, we recommend limiting crappies, largemouth bass, northern pike, walleye, and white bass to no more than one meal per month, um, and bluegill, pumpkin seed, and yellow perch to no more than one meal per week. The majority of that advisory was issued in the summer of 2021, um, but we just recently, earlier this year, added the recommendation for white bass. And beyond those advisories for other species, we recommend following this, the statewide uh, safe eating guidelines I mentioned. Sometimes people get confused about fish advisories. You know, they wonder, uh, are the fish advisories based on standards set for Wisconsin, or are they based on standards set by the federal government? Uh, are health studies used to set these standards, or is somebody just sitting at their desk sort of picking numbers at random uh, to base their standards on? And I know it's, it's, it can be somewhat complicated, but can you kind of briefly give us an overview of the factors that you use here in Wisconsin? Certainly. Um, I can assure you it's not random. Um, these recommendations are developed uh, based on guidelines um, that have been broadly developed by the Great Lakes Consortium for Fish Consumption Advisories. That's a group of states um, and Canadian provinces encircling the Great Lakes um, that have worked together since the 80s to understand the impact uh, all of these different persistent pollutants have on fish consumption and human health. So there are advisories for mercury, um, polychlorinated biphenyls, like I mentioned, now PFAS, and there are a number of other environmental pollutants that might cause specific advisories from there uh, in, in specific sites. But those, those are the main three, um, mercury, PCBs, and PFAS nowadays. So collectively, toxicologists from these different health agencies um, develop sets of be best practices to consider when we set advisories for different contaminants. And it's really a mix of qualitative and quantitative uh, risk assessment, looking at known toxicity values that we know there may be health effects from, while weighing those against the benefits that come from fish consumption as part of a healthy diet. And all of the rationale and best practice documents that we utilize are available online, um, currently hosted on the Minnesota Department of Health website. Um, and that goes into a lot more of the specifics if um, folks are interested about the specific toxicological values that we use and similar, the more technical details. I've been talking to Nathan Klotzko who's the program manager for the Wisconsin Department of Health Services in the Bureau of Environmental Health. Nathan, thanks for all your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. 
Well, our first 70 and 80 degree temperatures have come in quick succession this year. We breached 70 for the first time around 3 o'clock Monday afternoon, and then 80 just afternoon today. We only hit 60 for the first time a week ago, or a week and a half ago, I should say, in the closing hours of March. So the last few days especially have been a really delightful turnaround. And although we weren't especially cold through the second half of winter, uh, March was pretty much right on the averages, and uh, February was actually a little warmer than normal. Uh, neither did we have any particularly warm days during that period of a couple of months. So if it seemed like the normal crawl upward of our springtime temperatures was slow this year, that is a, an accurate perception. This week's warm spell is unfolding pretty much as predicted by the computer models last week, with an upper-level ridge progressing eastward off the Pacific Ocean, then getting stuck or at least delayed over the center of the country as it comes into a sort of self-reinforcing relationship with a developing swirl of low pressure down over the western Gulf of Mexico. I mentioned this blocking setup on the Monday morning forecast, and uh, you can see it coming together over the past 24 hours or so on uh, any of the water vapor imagery that we have linked up on the WORT weather webpage this evening. I recommend the water vapor view of the continental U.S. The wider North American view has some missing images currently and sort of some resultant jumpiness. But you can certainly see there, if you have a look, the development and intensification of that uh, cutoff low over the Gulf uh, yesterday beginning to retard the eastward progress of the upper ridge to its north, with the jet stream ringing around that top of that ridge now arcing from about southern Nevada way up over the Dakotas through central Ontario and back southeast across New England. So we're currently right under the apex of the ridge, basically. And the rightward turning of the atmosphere across the, that large expanse where the ridge is sitting is not only drawing air from the desert southwest up and over us, it's also facilitating subsidence and drying of that air, as rightward motion in the northern hemisphere does. And at the same time, also cutting off Gulf moisture down to our south as the upper winds curl around and circulate back westward to the south of that ridge across the Tennessee Valley region. So with bone-dry air coming in uh, through much of the air column and brisk southwesterly winds driven by a strong pressure gradient between surface high pressure to our southeast and low pressure out to our west on the backside of the ridge, we were able, able to mix the warm desert air aloft here earthward enough to reach 82 degrees this afternoon. That was a handful of degrees shy of the record of 86, but uh, as warm as uh, we've been since back on the autumnal equinox, uh, tomorrow, a second uh, day of near-identical conditions will uh, produce a similar temperature, uh, perhaps slightly cooler, but the target tomorrow is easier as well, only 78 degrees for the record high, so I think we can set a new one. This blocking pattern is only temporary, and if you keep your eyes on that gyre down over the gulf over the coming days, you'll see it wandering slowly northeastward up the Appalachian Mountains, gradually allowing the upper trough and cold front to the northwest to slide in across our area. That process has slowed down slightly <clears throat> on the computer model since Monday, with a general consensus now that the warmth will last into Saturday anyway, though with the onset of precipitation ahead of the cold front, uh, that's likely to make Saturday run in the 60s, let's say, instead of the 70s or 80s. A veering wind shift then overnight into Sunday will knock at least another 20 degrees off the thermometer, so we're going to enter late winter again as we head through Sunday and into the next work week. But back to this evening, southwesterly winds will uh, slowly come down to about 8 to 12 miles per hour overnight, but that'll be strong enough to keep the temperatures falling much past 60. 
Skies should remain uh, near cloudless overnight with just a strand of two, strand or two of cirrus. Tomorrow will be a near repeat of the day, but with slightly cooler temperatures aloft indicated on the high-resolution computer models, that may limit us to, say, 79 or 80. That would still be a record. Sky should remain uh, clear tomorrow with southwesterly winds at 10 to 20 miles per hour, maybe a little less gusty than today. Temperatures will drop back to the uh, mid, uh, possibly the low 50s tomorrow night with uh, lighter south winds. And Friday, we'll see increasing high clouds. That'll be mostly cirrus and possibly some mid-level clouds rotating northward, actually, from the ejecting low down to our southeast. Anyway, that'll cut temperatures another few degrees from Thursday down to the mid or upper 70s, but we'll continue with southerly winds at 10 to 17 miles per hour. Dew points may also start to feel a little bit uh, more moist on Friday with southerly winds uh, that day. Clouds will increase more significantly during the overnight with a low temperature in the mid to upper 50s. And then onset of precipitation on Saturday is going to be kind of a tough call, given some still significant model differences. I suspect showers will be wandering northeastward across the area by mid-morning, let's say, but uh, they may hold off till closer to the frontal approach later on. Temperatures will reach the upper 60s Saturday. Showers and thunderstorms may then cross the area at turns going through the overnight with winds Veering westerly then at some point, either late in the day or during the overnight, which will start uh, temperatures tumbling fairly precipitously. West-northwest winds will increase as well going into and through Sunday, with temperatures having dropped into the low 40s during the previous overnight, and they'll basically remain stuck there through the rest of Sunday. The temperature down here at the station at the moment is 78 degrees. The dew point temperature is 46. Uh, winds are out of the southwest around 10 miles per hour, still a bit gusty. Uh, skies are crystal clear over the station, and the barometer's been falling slowly at uh, 29.77 inches of mercury currently. We go now to early April 1960 for a tragic event in the history of UW sports. Here's Stu Levitan with this week's Madison in the 60s. <laughs> They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, April 1960, the death of a Lord of the Ring. As the decade opens, Wisconsin's Charlie Moore is one of the country's best and nicest collegiate boxers. In his horn-rimmed glasses and green tweed cap, he doesn't look like much of a fighter, but in 1959, the 22-year-old from the South Shore of Long Island was voted outstanding collegiate boxer and was the reigning NCAA champ at 165 pounds. He also won the NCAA trophy awarded to the boxer, quote, whose sportsmanship, skill, and conduct perpetuate the finest attributes of collegiate boxing. Son of a butcher and a clerk at Western Union, Moore came to Wisconsin on a boxing scholarship and worked as a waiter at Paisan's restaurant. A devout Catholic who often assisted at Sunday Mass at the State Girls' School in Oregon, they called him the saint with boxing gloves. When he prayed before a bout, it wasn't to win. It was that he wouldn't hurt his opponent. And he probably had more friends than anyone in Madison, including nine-year-old Tommy Moan, whom Moore adopted as the team mascot. In the spring of 1960, the stylish Southpaw is captain of a fabled squad. 
Since its intercollegiate start in 1933, boxing had been the UW's best athletic program by far, with nine undefeated seasons and an NCAA record-setting eight national championships. On April 5th, Moore is named first-team All-American at his weight class. Two nights later, the NCAA tournament opens at the UW Fieldhouse. 10,000 are there when the tournament climaxes on Saturday night the 9th, with six Wisconsin fighters in the finals. The atmosphere is electric as Moore climbs into the ring to take on a friend, San Jose's Stu Bartell, a Navy veteran and former football player at LSU. Several Badger boxers had already lost. Moore has to win for Wisconsin to take back the collegiate crown. The first two-minute round is close, with Moore probably ahead. Then, about halfway through the second, Bartell lands a terrific right cross, flush on Moore's left forehead. Moore gets up at the count of two, takes the standing nine count, and is clear to continue. The boxers spar and clinch a bit. Then Moore's legs buckle, and his hands hang limp. The ref stops the fight at 1.49 of the second round. Moore makes it back to the dressing room unaided, even signing autographs on the way. He apologizes to Coach Vern Woodward and the team for losing. I guess I zigged when I should have zagged, he says. Moore seems physically fine as coach and teammates tell him not to feel bad about losing. He says his head hurts, and he lies down. Then the convulsions begin. Word spreads quickly through the fieldhouse. I'm sorry I hurt your friend, an anguished Bartell tells the young Tommy Moan. Moore is rushed to University Hospital, but by the time Dr. Manukhar Javid operates, Moore is already in a coma, with a tear in a major vein and a blood clot in his brain. The difficult three-hour operation stops the bleeding and drains the clot, but Javid knows there's little hope and says so. The situation is so dire, Moore is given the last rites of the Roman Catholic Church that night. A score or more of Moore's teammates and friends maintain an around-the-clock vigil at his bedside. Moore's father writes Bartell, absolving him of any blame. He calls the injury part of God's plan. Coach Woodward says he's worried that if Moore suffers permanent damage, it could mean the end of boxing at Wisconsin. Later, influential fans of the program claim boxing wasn't to blame. They say Moore had an aneurysm that could have burst at any time and just happened to do so during a bout. Whether they believe that or just say it, it isn't true. But with boxing already on the ropes in Madison and around the country, they hope to convince others it is. At 8.40 on Easter morning, April 17th, Charlie Moore is pronounced dead. Two days after Moore's death, reporter Elliot Marinus reveals in the Capital Times that he had suffered from depression, was questioning his life as a boxer, saw a psychiatrist a few times, and even had electroshock treatment. Team and university officials won't say whether they knew about those issues before the fatal bout. But it's later revealed that Moore's teammates knew of his emotional state. One friend had pleaded with Coach Woodward to pull him from the tournament. Woodward, in his second year after succeeding legendary coach John Walsh, said everything would be all right. Moore stayed in the program because he needed to keep his scholarship. 
Around the state, debate begins on the future of what the legendary journalist A.J. Liebling called the sweet science of bruising. Dr. Anthony Carreri, UW professor of surgery and chairman of the Boxing Rules Committee of the NCAA, calls Moore's death a real tragedy, but says college boxing is basically safe and should continue. But the secretary to the State Athletic Commission, himself a former boxer, calls it barbaric and says it should be banned. The Milwaukee Journal agrees, editorializing that university officials have the clear duty to end it immediately. On May 9th, the UW faculty meets in Music Hall. Ignoring the athletic board's formal request for a referral and without consulting Coach Woodward or letting him speak at the meeting, the faculty overwhelmingly adopts a resolution declaring that boxing, quote, is not an appropriate intercollegiate sport and so should be discontinued. And so it is. And since the Big Ten requires that faculty have total control over athletics, the resolution stands, with no appeal to the administration or the regents. On May 11th, the Daily Cardinal blasts the faculty for ending 27 years of boxing tradition after only 20 minutes of discussion. They didn't rely on committees. They relied on their immediate whims and fancies, the paper editorializes. It is dangerous to give such an irresponsible group so much power. Other schools soon follow Wisconsin's lead. And in January 1961, so does the NCAA. There would never be another NCAA boxing tournament after the night Charlie Moore fell at the UW Fieldhouse. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our writer, headline writer this evening was David Aaron. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Greg Michaud and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan's our engineer. Nate Weggie helped produce the newscast. And Shelley Pittman is our news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.